Hello, and welcome to Session 2 of the Fairy and Fantasy course at Washington College. Today we begin our first discussion, focusing on the first 200 lines of Sir Orfeo. This day was also the first time I had my new two-microphone setup working, and the results were an improvement, I think, over last year's course and over the first session. The students, although they are far clearer than last year, are still at times a little hard to hear. The room this class is in is large and cavernous, and it's not easy to hear from one end to the other even when you're in the room. I'll keep working on it to see if I can improve the quality still further. Anyway, on to the class. Today we get the, the extra bonus entertainment of seeing if I trip on wires. I uh, managed to wrap myself entirely up in about 15 feet of cable that I have here. Um, okay, first question. How was the, the, uh, how was the reading? Like, how did you find the Middle English? Okay, we, we, we made it through. From the look of your uh, discussion board posts, it looked like it at least at least vague comprehension was attained, so that was good. <laughs> um, any, any questions, anything that was bothering you while you were reading that you would want to ask now? Whether it be sort of a simple language question or something in the story that you just felt you weren't getting? Yeah, Marta? Um, when I was reading it, it kind of messed me up a little bit. I think I got it, but when it's just a why, that's... I and not, like, okay. Yes. When it's just a Y standing by itself, uh, that is almost always the first person singular pronoun, I. Yeah. E. Me up with you. <laughs> yeah, that, for some reason, a capital Y standing by itself looks really strange. Uh, there's something just alien about that. But yeah, that's just, that's just first person pronoun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other questions? Other questions of that sort? Or anything else? Okay. Um, then I want to start off talking about sort of the context of this story, um, because, of course, there is a context, right? There is a, a story that we should be thinking of. It is not necessarily obvious that a, a knowledge of the story upon which this poem is based is mandatory, like you're not going to get it if you don't know the previous story, but we're given some pretty clear cues to think about it. What, 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 what of course, is the classical story which lies behind this? Orpheus. Right, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, uh, our hero, Sir Orpheus' name, is of course only a uh, slightly Middle English version of that, and then contextualized by calling him Sir, even though of course he's a king, uh, as we see. But this, is, this poem is not called King Orpheo, uh, because as you will have seen if you read the rest of the poem, or as you shortly shall see when you move on to uh, next class's reading, uh, he is going to abdicate his kingship uh, and wander about. So he will spend the majority of the poem not, in fact, as King Orpheo. So it's not just arbitrary that he's called that. But um, can somebody uh, we start off with a sort of a recap, a, a quick recap of the Orpheus and Eurydice, and Eurydice story? Um, this is not just a retelling of that. It's not only that this has been recast and the main character has been put into a, you know, a medieval uh, context and everything. It's going to be a different story, but we should recall it. Stephanie? Uh, Sir Orf uh, the Orpheus myth? Yeah, the Orpheus myth. Um, Orpheus and Eurydice, am I yeah. Eurydice. Uh, Eurydice. Yeah. They were um, married, and on their wedding day, she was bitten by a snake and died. So Orpheus went to Hades after her, and he played, I believe it was a harp for uh, Hades and Persephone, and they were moved so moved by the music they agreed to let him take her back on the condition that he didn't turn back to look at her during the trip, 
which he did when they were almost out and she had to return. Good, good. Yeah, those are the basic outlines of the story. Um, important differences to notice right up front. Orpheus, he doesn't hold any position. He's not a king or anybody important. What is important about him is that he's the greatest musician who ever lived and who ever will live. Uh, and he's the son of the muses, so his, his whole sort of nature is focused on his artistic expression. Um, and so the story is the one of, you know, he, he, who experiences tragedy, um, and yet this human being, because he is human, even though uh, he's, he's the son of the muses, who yet through his human art, um, through his uh, unparalleled human art, manages to almost, tragically almost reverse his tragedy and get his wife back from the dead. Um, so there will, of course, be other times in this story where, where we will see clear par- parallels to the Orpheus story, but also some very significant differences. So I just wanted to make sure that we all have that general outline uh, in our minds. Uh, because, of course, the, uh, the author plainly recalls this story at the beginning. We're given the context at the beginning with the emphasis, of course, on Sir Orpheus harping, um, but also very explicitly on the clear mythological context. Now, I say clear mythological context, which is perhaps rash to say. I mean clear mythological context in the sense that the context is clearly mythological, not in the sense that the mythological context is at all clear. Um, What is is the the mythological connection that our hero, Sir Orfeo, is given? You remember, Kat? He's the... It says that he's the son of two kings of Juno and... Yeah, he is descended on father and mother's side from King Pluto and King Juno. If you are confused by that, you should have been. Juno, of course, was fairly famously female uh, and not a king at all. Uh, She was the queen of the gods and the wife of Jupiter, uh, a.k.a. Zeus. So that already there's a certain degree of confusion going on here. But what I would really like to, uh, to emphasize there, notice what we're told about that. It's not just, what, the, what, what our poet is not just saying is, ah, this is one of those myths. I'm retelling a myth, so I'm going to put it in the context of these old pagan gods. Because he doesn't do that, right? He's not talking about the god Pluto in the stories about the underworld, which, of course, Pluto was the king of the underworld before whom Orpheus in the myth plays his music and gets uh, Pluto and his wife, Proserpina, to give them their Latin names to relent and let Eurydice come back. So he's not just connecting it to any god, but actually to one of the ones most relevant to the Orpheus story. Um, But it's not that story that's explicitly being recalled. Notice how it's described. If you can call up your text in line 43. His father was common of King Pluto and his mother of King Juno. Okay, so we have our little confusion there. That some team, now this is the important part, that some team were as God as he hold for aventures that they did and told. So what's he telling us there? Mac, what does this mean? That, uh, they were really great guys. We called them gods because of that, but they Right, exactly. Now, this, was, this is a traditional idea, not just a traditional medieval idea, a traditional classical idea. There were many people uh, back in the Greco-Roman era who said, you know, these stories that we have about these gods, about people, whether it be people like, like Hercules or even people like Zeus and Saturn, um, these are not actual deities. 
These are stories that have arisen which were originally inspired by the actions of great heroic human beings, which over time have been made legendary and they've been talked about as if they were gods. So he's not making anything up here. This is not a sort of novel approach by our poet. Um, He's citing a very traditional understanding. But you see what this kind of boils down to then, especially if we connect this with the fact that this uh, this is explicitly, based on the title and based on the names, a recasting of the Orpheus story, what he seems to be doing or suggesting is giving us a kind of, this is the true story, right? You've heard the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, right? But we all know, especially in the Christian era, that those, those pagan myths aren't literally true in the way that they were told. Even the pagans knew that, as he's suggesting here, from the reference that he's making to these, to these, these, these great men who were later called gods, Right? So there is a sense, gently, in which our poet is saying, this is sort of the true substance of the Orpheus story. This is like the story behind the Orpheus myth. Yeah? I know it's not a, uh, a, an unusual device in medieval uh, poetry, but example of the uh, anachronism with which they, uh, they do this. Like, this is the true version of the, you know, by now probably, well, yeah, definitely over plenty old story. And it is totally modern. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. No, that is a wonderful thing to point out. And as you say, very typical. This is just how medieval stories work. See, if, if, if a modern writer were going to do this, right, if we're going to be like, I'm going to tell the ancient story upon which the myth was based, they would then have the consistency to set it in an ancient setting, right? Uh, in, in a setting which was theoretically more ancient than the stories that grew up centuries afterwards, right? But no, no, not at all, not at all. What those ancient myths were based on is a story that looks like it could take place around the corner in a city just like the cities that you live in with a king just like the people you know about and knights and falconry and everything just like your current surroundings. Yeah, that was, but that is, is absolutely just sort of part of the medieval technique. They had absolutely no well, I won't say absolutely no, but they had no very, no very clear priority on that kind of you know, avoidance of anachronism and you know, finding the true setting and stuff. They were not an archaeological age. They didn't really care. It didn't bother them. So if, if I mean, I, I feel very certain if we were to sort of confront the Orpheus poet somehow, if we were first to identify him and then to resurrect him or her, then um, we, you know, and said, okay, so don't you think this is a little silly that you're setting this poem, which is supposed to be before that in this modern era? And he would say, no, why is this a problem? I was telling a story. And so I was telling it a story. I was telling the story in the way that we tell stories. Why are, you know, it, it, he would, I think it'd be just genuinely puzzled as to why we would care about this. Um, but anyway, Note also in passing, we are going to get past the introductory lines, by the way. Note in passing (laughs) that uh, the frame of this story is interesting not only in the cues that it gives us in how we might possibly be thinking about this story in relationship to the Orpheus myth, but also it's interesting in the way in which it emphasizes singing and harping. That is, it's rather conspicuous in the way it emphasizes singing and harping, giving the fact of what this story is going to be about. Like you'll notice in those first introductory lines, um, that is before we actually introduce Orpheus himself, the first 24 lines, we're just talking about poetries and harping, right? Way rideth off and findeth irita, and these clerkes well it weeta, liars that been in harping, been you fond of fairly thing. There are lots of songs that people sing. People write lots of different kinds of lays on various subjects. 
So here's one I'm going to tell you, a song with harping about Sir Orfeo, which, of course, conspicuously, is going to be a story about singing and harping, and I think that's not a coincidence. Especially, of course, you notice also how he goes into kings love to listen to people harp, right? Kings can listen to any kind of harping they want, right? And they can, they can make their own requests. So, oh, oh, and by the way, we're not going to tell a story about a king who was, of course, himself also a harper. So there's this sort of meta-musical introduction here, right? This is a song about singing, or at least a song about a singer. And, uh, you know, we'll come back to this later on. I think that this, um, you know, we, we haven't yet gotten to the places where that fact about this poem is really interesting. But just kind of take note of that in passing and sort of store it away, because I think we will want to come back to that later on. Um, let's get on to the encounter with fairy that Queen Herodes has. Um, what do you make of her reaction? How would you describe her reaction? She wakes up and freaks out, right? I mean, there she is with her maids out in the orchard. They're all having a good time, a very restful time. She's taking a pleasant nap under a tree, right? And then she wakes up and absolutely loses it, right? Bolts out of her sleep, screaming, scratching her face until she draws blood. Her maids run away in fear. And notice what they run for? They run for knights and squires to do what? You know what they, to hold her down, right? They're, they, they, they're like, they, they can't handle it, right? They both run away, and they're like, knights come. They bring like a hundred knights, right, to come and restrain her. So, I mean, she's completely lost it here. What do you make of it? How do you, how do you understand her reaction? It says that she was driven mad or out of her wits on a couple of occasions. What do you make of that, Taylor? It's almost like the terrible is something that she can't process or handle. Yeah, there's something... It's plainly overwhelming, right? It's plainly overwhelming. Um, this is not... I mean, how would we characterize her reaction? Is she... I mean, there are different circumstances, right? emotional circumstances, in which one might react that way. Screaming and the scratching of oneself, grief, for instance, rage, possibly. What is she, what is, how do we... I can feel like, uh, very decided that, like, a fairy is over someone saying, her eyes can handle it. The bee itself, we should try and fly out, trying to get out Right. Now, I agree, now, of course, the, I agree with that. One addition I would make, this is clearly not... The tone of it, that is the, the tone of her reaction, if we can say that, uh, is, is clearly not like, ah, I am ravished with beauty. I cannot handle I must pluck out my eyes because the beauty is overwhelming. I swoon, I swoon. That's not what's happening here, right? Her, her, her reaction is more negative than that. Now, that, that, that doesn't amount to a disagreement, uh, Dorian, with what you and, and Taylor were suggesting. But I, I think we have to be, be clear, there's also strong negativity here being experienced and expressed by her that we have to fit into that picture. Tam? Is she terrified by their threats that they made if she returned to the tree? Did they say they were going to tear her apart? <laughs> Certainly the account that she gives ends on a rather chilling note, right? 
Ah, behold how lovely our lands are. We are going to come and take you away to live with us forever. And if you try to resist, you shall be torn in pieces. <laughs> Have a nice day. See you tomorrow. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, I can see how that would kind of freak you out a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, so fear does seem to be, does seem to be involved. Erin? Um, the way she went mad and was tearing at herself, it reminded me of, like, in Greek myths, going back to Orpheus, that so, when women were portrayed as being as in mourning, they would tear at themselves. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of saw it as, like, she's already mourning the losing her husband and her kingdom and everything she's ever known. Yeah, I agree. Those gestures, I think, would be associated at least a bit, because it's not, not only in Greek mythology, but also we see a similar thing um, in, in, in the Old Testament too, that same gesture of rending the garments and tearing the hair uh, and even, uh, even also cratching the, vis- the, the visage, right? You gotta, uh, until the blood flows. Um, yeah, that, that's, it does seem like grief. And that would seem to fit, to kind of go back to the text and look at a couple of the cues that we get there, Notice her own, um, her own description of this, her own sort of final assessment. This is on, on line 123. Oh, starting up at line 20. Alas, me lord, Sir Orfeo, saith and we first together where on his wrath never way ne'er, but ever each he have loved they, as me leaf, and so do may. Ach nu we mot dalen at all, do the best, for he mot go. She's grieving in advance. And this is one of the powerful differences between this and the Orpheus myth, right? I mean, what was so horrible about the Orpheus and Eurydice story is they're happy, they're in love, they're getting married, it's their wedding day for crying out. And like during the ceremony, a snake suddenly comes out of nowhere, bites her on the heel, and she dies, right? Um, so the, the tragedy there is the, the suddenness of it, that she's suddenly taken away from him right at the moment where their happiness appeared about to be consummated. Here, we have a totally different effect. This, I have been given certain information that 24 hours from now we shall be parted forever, right? And I know this and I can't do anything about it and you can't do anything about it. So she is in the position, which you have to admit is slightly unusual, of grieving herself, She's like mourning her own death in advance, in a sense. Um, yet normally, people who act like that are people who are standing next to corpses, right? Not people who are soon to be corpses, because, of course, usually you don't know with quite so much clarity uh, and certitude that, that that's going to happen. Now, I should be careful. I'm talking about corpses. We're not talking about corpses. There's no corpse, right? Um, but the kind of separation, she clearly sees this as a separation that is at least going to be death-like in its absoluteness and permanence. Um, She has plainly gotten the impression that this is not going to be a temporary trip uh, to ferry that she's going to be making. So so I agree agree with that. But also, there's another moment that I think is really interesting when we see um, when Sir Orfeo comes to her and we see his uh, sort of uh, rundown of her symptoms, right? When he sort of describes what she looks like. Um, look at how he look at how he ends that. Um, he describes uh, starting in line 105 how her body, which was so, which was so white, is now, um, is now all to torn with her nails. Uh, her her roda, uh, 
Rhoda is just actually a form of the word. It literally means um, complexion. Your footnote, your footnote says something, or your side note says something else. Um, it says face, which is, which is kind of true, but your Rhoda means your, your complexion, like that, you know, how, how rosy your face is. Um, so her redness is not at all red anymore. It used to be very red. She used to have, you know, nice rosy cheeks, and now she's as pale as a corpse. But look, look where he, what he leads up to there. Alas, the lovesome iron toe looketh so man doth on his fall. What he seems to be most struck by, what he ends with, is not just, gosh, uh, you know, you look a mess. Uh, you look like you're really suffering. But her eyes. How do her eyes look? They look like, um, like someone who would look like how you would look at an enemy. Yeah. Not, not lovingly. <laughs> not lovingly. And now, he seems to be a little concerned, like, this. Notice this is where she responds by saying there's never been any wrath between us, right? She seems to be reassuring him, no, it's not you. It's not you. It's, I'm not looking at you as if you're my enemy. But she clearly has been, at least within her own mind, looking upon her enemy. He sees enmity there. So I think it's, it's, not, it's not only grief um, and it's not only fear. There's also anger here. You know, she is sort of perceives herself, seems to perceive herself as under attack. Um, sort of, at least, her mind caught up in the prospect of being taken by her enemies and not being able to do anything about it. So I think that the, the, the depiction of her state in this way is, uh, is kind of complicated. Um, we can see a lot of things involved here. Also notice her actions, why she needs to be held down, is that she seems to be trying to get away. I mean, her first impulse is to run. Um, which, of course, is fairly understandable under the circumstances. Um, now, what about the fairies themselves? Yeah. Well, they're depicted as having this ridiculously extravagant everything. It's clear to them it's better than everything we have. Like, they think it's a crown made out of the solid Yeah. It's not just like silver or gold. You know, regular mortal kings might have silver or gold crowns. His is made out of, like, carved somehow out of a single gem, which we don't even, like, recognize. Some kind of... Even the gemstone material is beyond what we can even identify. And they, they've kind of got this uh, weirdly different morality going. You know, he, he seems to think it's perfectly okay to abduct the queen because I've got this nice place to be with it. It's all set up. <laughs> weirdly different morality, yeah. I mean, trying to... Trying to parse the fairies' actions and the king of the fairies' speech on a purely, like, social cues level is really puzzling, right? Because there are some ways in which this seems like a really happy, kind, and benevolent affair. And, of course, the end of the speech is possibly the weirdest. It's like, if you don't come with us, we'll kill you, and then you have to come with us. Well, we'll rip you to pieces and then bring you with us in pieces. Yeah. It doesn't actually say she'll die. She'll just be all totorn, you know, which I guess might be survivable. But, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's... There are some interesting kinds of contradictions, and not just in his speech, not just in sort of his approach to her. 
his verbal approach to her, but even in their actions and descriptions, I think we can see some of these things. Will, what were you going to say? Well, the thing that struck me as most interesting about this was that there's, there's no discernible reason why they would even want them. Like, they, they, she describes everyone that comes with it, and there are beautiful women there, you know, probably more beautiful than her since everything they have is better. And he, the, uh, the king doesn't give a reason for why they want her. That's, that's what struck me most interesting, because there's no motive. Yeah. We're certainly not given a motive, not a clear motive. Now, the only things that we do know, what do we know about Herodes? We know what? At least three major things about her. She's beautiful. She's exceptionally beautiful. She's described as being more beautiful than any other lady around. That's one, I think, clearly relevant thing. What else? She fell asleep under the tree. Yeah, yeah, we'll come back to that, because I think that that's a really interesting thing, too. Um, sort of the immediate context, not just her, her sort of the, the, not just the context sort of larger, but the actual setting of her um, uh, encounter, um, I think is definitely important, too. Yeah, she's very good. So she's not just beautiful. She's like the complete package, right? She is physically beautiful. She is morally beautiful. She is an exceptional person. She's also, I would include as a separate but related fact, a queen. This is, I think, significant, and we will see that the fairies seem to think this is important later on. Um, Modern Americans don't pay too much attention to this kind of thing, but... uh, there's a difference, you know, between queens and princesses and non-queens and princesses. Um, that we will see. That one can see in many fairy tale traditions. But um, really, many older traditions, uh, pre-modern traditions. So, so she's, she's very beautiful and very good. She's a queen. And she is loved very much by her husband. Um, that I think is clearly another really important thing about her that is the other primary piece of information that we have about her is her relationship with Orfeo. Um, And we're not introduced to her in any other context. It's not like we hear about this wonderful dame Herodotus and then the two of them get married and then this happens. They're already married before our story begins, um, which which I think is, uh, is worth noting, therefore, that she's never outside of that context of her relationship with him. Um... And remember how we were primed for this also in, that, in those first 24 lines when he's talking about lays in general. Remember he says there are lays about all kinds of things, right? There's some about war and some about woe and there's some about ribaudia and burdes, right? But there are also some about fiery, which seems like a setup for our current story, which is clearly about fiery. But he then also adds, but mostly, even the most popular kind of lay are about love. Um, also suggesting that what you're about to hear is one of those, too. That fundamentally this is a love poem, which it is. Um, you know, we get, we get some of a little of many of those, <laughs> those common elements and themes uh, in this one. Um, but yeah, I want to come back to just a, the brief reference that I made to some kinds of contradictions in them. On the one hand, who are the first uh, fairy creatures that she sees? Robert? Yeah, she sees a couple knights charging towards her it's not clear whether that's like an act of aggression against her or not she's clearly understandably spooked by this you know her first impulse is to say i don't want to talk to you you are strange knights charging me in the orchard and uh you know i'm uncomfortable with this situation even before i perceive that you are manifestly 
uh, magical. See, I was about to say I almost thoughtlessly said supernatural, um, but that's not necessarily true. Um, one of the questions which I haven't asked and one of the issues that I haven't talked about much at the beginning is what exactly are the fairies and what did medieval people seem to believe about them? Um, because they did seem to believe uh, that fairies actually existed. Um, and I haven't talked about that because instead of like listening to me tell you various people, various modern and, and medieval people's guesses about that, I would rather just read these poems and see what we see about the depiction of them and what they're connected with. Because, of course, the majority of those modern and medieval assessments of this come from these stories and are expressed in these stories. So let's just look at the first-hand accounts instead of listening to me tell you the hearsay. Um, but one thing that I will say uh, up front about that, it is not clear that they're necessarily supernatural um, in the sense in which gods or even angels are supernatural. Um, medieval people in general really loved being able to categorize things, really liked having a clear... They liked putting everything in its place and having things set out in neat hierarchies and being able to, uh, to, to, to identify, to peg everything on its peg. They really liked that. They were very systematic uh, in their thinking. Um, so they wrestled with system, the systematizing of fairies because they don't really seem to fit into any neat category. Um, which is why there's no real definitive answer to that question. But anyway, before, even before she perceives that they are magical, it's a little odd. It's a little spooky. But then, Robbie, as you say, after them, after these knights who may or may not be aggressive, who may or may not be threatening, you get all these damsels on horseback, right? So it's like, oh, okay, this is obviously not a war party, right? We're just out on an, out on an outing. In fact, what could be more likely? Why is the queen there? Why is she lying in the orchard? What's she doing? Hmm? She's sleeping. Why there? Why'd she go out in the orchard? It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. And it's not just any old garden variety beautiful day. It's first of May. It's a beautiful day in the month of May. Uh, if you want to know more about the month of May, ask Emily. Uh, she knows all about the month of May. She's writing her thesis on Sir Thomas Mallory and thinks about the month of May more than she would like to. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's a day in May. It was a tradition in spring to, to do to what was called to go Maying. This is where you, you know, maypoles come from and everything. And, you know, uh, uh, dancing around a maypole might be something one might do on a Maying expedition. Um, To go maying essentially is, is sort of, well, okay. You're going out to, you know, enjoy the spring. I mean, on the one, it's a very natural sort of thing. It's been winter for a long time. Now it's spring. It's warm. The flowers are growing. The trees are in blossom. Um, you just go out to enjoy the spring weather. Um, normally, it's a communal thing. Like, it is very common for a, a large party of people to go out maying, um, the queen goes out with only her two ladies, so she's having a little sort of private little maying expedition. But it's clear that it is a maying expedition by the context of it. We're told, like, the reason why they go out. Line 57, Befell so in the commissing of my, when Mirian hot is the dye, and away both winter shores, and every field is full of floors. See, we need no other reason than this to explain why she's gone out. 
en blaas my breim aan every boog, over al wexith marionucht. This Ichequain, dam Horodes, talked to tall maidens of priests, and went in an undren tida to ply be an orchard cedar, to say the flores spread in spring, and to hear the fullers sing. That's why, to see the flowers and to hear the birds. She's May. Now, so when the fairies show up, they seem to be Maying too. What could be more natural? As soon as we see the damsels on horseback, that's what it looks like. Okay, whew, at least they're not, you know, this is not like a raid or something, right? With the knights on horseback, it came with But they're Maying. Excellent. And they then sort of take her on this forced, compulsory Maying expedition. And here's again where we get the... Uh, where we get that, that sort of sense of contradiction. Come, we are out on a pleasant ride in the country. What is more free uh, and, and, and sort of unthreateningly entertaining than maying, right? And we're going to bring you with us, whether you like it or not. <laughs> right? And there are a couple times when that will she, nil she, like whether she will or not, you're coming, right? And so it's like, oh, oh, okay. Now come on a tour of the pleasant countryside, right? And let me show you the beauties of my kingdom and look at all the cities and the towers and the fields. And it's really lovely. And we will take you with us to be with us forever in this perfect land where all is wonderful. And you can never leave or see your husband again. And we shall tear you to pieces if you try to resist. I mean, it's... It's, it's, it's hard to parse. It's hard to figure out where they're coming from before we even recognize... Uh, as you guys pointed out, that we don't get a motive. We're not told, like, this is why we've chosen you, Dame Herodes, uh, for this compulsory maying expedition, and also uh, for your permanent uh, no questions, <laughs> no questions askable vacation uh, to fairyland. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little uncertain. Jordan, go ahead. Um, I found something that actually was not necessarily kind of but it was issue with the... Uh the idea that they were non-threatening from the beginning. It describes the example of Lennon status, which the footnote notes is the, the wood that is generally used for like war horses and decimated, but horses don't be good into battle. These maidens are wearing like huge chuggies. Maybe? I mean... I don't know. From the context of the passage, I'm... Yeah. Yeah, it would be more of a riding horse. I mean, I don't know. Like, from the description, I'm not... I'm not willing to go like to Xena warrior princess on the damsel there. Maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe it could be a kind of, I mean, it certainly would fit into the general, I don't know how to parse this, right? On the one hand, lots of damsels out riding on a maying expedition, that's fun, but, you know, like their horses, maybe. When we see damsels out riding in a pack later on, um, fairy damsels riding in a pack, they're going to be um, falconing. So even though they're not just like ambling about, um, not that you would ride a war horse uh, to uh, do falconry either. But um, anyway, uh, that, but I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe. Christine? Um. I'm not really sure, since I've never read the original Orpheus story, how, um, how the underworld is described, but um, I, I see this, this, like, this entire contra- contradictory setting as a sort of a part of the realism 
that he said or he was mentioning or implied earlier in the in the poem. And not only that, like, is it sort of a realistic or interesting spin, but it's like utterly confusing, which is really important. Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I think that that's a good point. Um, it is not at all clear. It certainly does not look like the way the underworld is traditionally described. Um, the underworld in Greek mythology certainly is not a cheerful place. In Roman mythology, like when we, when we visit the underworld in the Aeneid, there is a cheerful bit. <laughs> There's like a, you know, a cheerful subsection of the underworld where everyone is happy. Um, but you can't even get there without going past the the places where lots of people are not very happy and the road towards where people are deeply unhappy and you can sort of hear the screams of the tortured but then you go down the other road and you get to the happy place so um i but but nothing i mean she doesn't see anything like that right all she's shown is this beautiful very undeath-like realm um if we didn't know the Orpheus story, we'd have no reason to... Asso- I, I wouldn't think. We'd have any reason to associate this tour that she's given with death or with the traditional underworld. Um, and therefore, the king of the fairies with, you know, Pluto, god of death. Um, that is, I, I don't think that we would necessarily have guessed that parallel if we, had, if we didn't have that prompt here, at least not yet. Um, later, maybe, but not yet. Um, so I agree, that's... It's, and then especially when she starts talking, when she starts acting like she's in, in frantic mourning and when she's talking about, as, you know, as if she's anticipating her own certain death, she is talking about it in this way. So I, I agree with you. It gives us that kind of mixed signal again. Um, she's acting like it's really horrible, even though it doesn't seem really horrible. I mean, apart from the being ripped to pieces part. If you can get past the being ripped to pieces, the rest of it sounds fine. Um, and that's only if you try to resist and stay with the husband that you really love. So, you know, like choices and stuff, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. He ripped to pieces part, and then also a callback to Orpheus, because in the end, he ripped to pieces. He does get ripped to pieces, um, not by Pluto, of course. But, yes, the ultimate fate of Orpheus um, is he gets dismembered bodily um, by one subset of people who have no ear for music, um, apparently. No, it's a tragic story. Orpheus rejects... The, these are the Maenads, the, the frantic, uh, women, furious women who follow Bacchus, um, who, uh, are, you know, they get the hots for Orpheus and he's not interested, so they get really mad. And they try to kill him, which is really difficult at first because Orpheus's music is famously so, uh, so wonderful that even rivers stop flowing and, and stones turn to, you know, to listen and to hear him. So they're, trying, they're like, th- in, 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 in Ovid's version of the story, which is the most famous one, they're throwing rocks at him and the rocks won't hit him. Because, like, they come close, and then they hear the music, and they drop quietly at his feet to listen, right? So they're, they get, the manads get really frustrated with their inability to kill him until finally they manage to uh, cry out, so the, to scream so loudly that they drown out his music, and some of the rocks start hitting. Uh, and then they come, and they rip him apart bodily with their, uh, with their hands and throw his miraculous tongue uh, of his song into the river. Uh, and 
you know, and, and rip off his head. Anyway, it's, it's ugly. So yeah, the tearing apart thing, we do have an Orpheus context for the tearing apart thing, but it's him, not her, right? She dies a comparatively, you know, kind of garden variety death, uh, you know, tragic snake bite accident could happen to anybody. Uh, and then, and, in, and there's no, also there's no evidence that she's being punished particularly or tortured in the underworld. She's just a shade in the underworld uh, with the other shades and Orpheus quite wants her back. So, um, but yes, I agree. There is, uh, we should remember that the, um, there is some precedent for tearing to pieces. Um, one other thing though that I want to point out about the tearing to pieces, did you notice the echo in that language? When he says you're going to be all totorn, we've heard that exact expression before. Did you notice that? Um, look at that for a second. So uh, the, the, her, account, her account of the, uh, of the king's speech there, this is uh, line 165. Lokadama, tomorrow that to bay, rig tear under this impetre, and fan thou shalt with us go, and live with us evermore. And if thou makest us illet, where thou be, thou worst effet. So ominous. Go ahead and try to run, ever, run away. Wherever you go, we will fetch you from where you are. Very scary. And in case that's not scary enough, entotora thin limizala, that nothing help thee, no shala. Double negative. And they, through best so torn, yet through worst with usi born. Don't think that even being, tearing, even being torn to pieces is going to spare you from coming with us. There is literally no escape. Um, pretty scary. Uh, so, entotora vin limizal. But go back up to line 105. That is Orpheus's description when he finds her after she wakes up. The body that was so wheat decora with the nylas is all totora. She's already all totora with her own nails when she woke up. And it makes you wonder, is he actually saying, if you resist, we will tear you up? Or has his threat already come to pass? This is what resisting the fairies looks like. If you try guess what's going to happen? You're going to wake up and you're going to rip yourself to pieces in your grief. And, but just come quiet. If you just come quiet, you won't be all to torn. She's already all to torn with her own nails. Um, now, you know, it may well be that he is also threatening to, you know, dismember her completely. Uh, I, I'm not trying to de-emphasize uh, the creepiness of that, uh, of that threat. Um, but I think, I think that that echo is really interesting. Jordan? It could be even more of like to spread what already happened because like, okay, you want to resist? You will not be, you only, I mean, the idea that maybe she would have been weeping, you know, not killing herself means, you know, overriding her. That's a pretty horrifying part, too. He's like losing her. Like, right. Possibly. Possibly. Though it seems just as easily that it would be like a prediction rather than uh, compulsion. Say, look, if you... If you resist, if when you wake up, you are determined, you're not like all over pleased to come with us tomorrow, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up all totora, and she does. While she, though, though I agree with you, Jordan, I mean, she is also kind of out of her mind, right? Um, so, you know, is she, is this what being kind of, you know, touched by the king of fairies looks like? 
you know, it, with her with that like that her own mind is kind of overridden and she ends up tearing herself up. Um, is she acting as you know, like the agent of the king there in tearing herself? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, one. One thing I want to make sure we touch on, though, before we go, Kat, I want to come back to what you pointed out about the orchard and the tree, because um, we kind of skipped over that. Um, that is the significance of her setting. We talked about the Maying and the and the you know the season and why she's out there and all the flowers and the uh, and the birds and everything else that are surrounding her, and that that's why she's gone out to uh, you know enjoy the beauty of the natural world, which segues to a tour of the even more profound beauty of the. Uh, special world, right, that she's shown, that seems to be perfectly logical and to make perfect sense. Um, but what do you make of the impetre? Lots of debate about the impetre. One thing I want to I clarify, though, uh, one possible piece of confusion. Any association that you have between the word imp and devils of any kind, that is like the idea of an imp being a, being a little demonic spirit, um, that seems to be anachronistic. That is, that use of the word imp does not seem to come in until the 16th century, as you might expect. The Renaissance is when we become really obsessed with demons and witches, that we were not obsessed with demons and witches in the, in the Middle Ages. In the Renaissance, we get really wild about demons and witches. Ask James I how interested he was in, in demons and witches. Um, we don't get stories like Macbeth, uh, being really popular in the Middle Ages. That's a Renaissance story. Faust, that's a Renaissance story. Um, anyway, uh, so there we get, and, and the word imp, it means like an offshoot, okay? Um, like a, a, a sapling or something. So uh, the phrase, by the way, how that comes to mean this like little demonic spirit uh, is the phrase uh, that, you know, that this person is or is communing with an imp of Satan. Like, not like Satan himself, but, you know, just like a little, like, offshoot of Satan, a little sub-Satan, right? A little, like that. That's, that's, and then, and then uh, the phrase imp of Satan was just sort of reduced to imp, and the word imp came to mean little miniature demon, like the one that might perch on your, on your shoulder in Tom and Jerry or something like that. And that's where, like, we get the, you know, to act impishly or, like, you know, she gave him an impish smile or whatever, like, that, that's all derived from that Renaissance idea. But that, as I said, there was no association um, with devils for this word in the Middle Ages. It just meant a shoot, a sapling. Um, so the impetre seems to be either a tree which has been artificially uh, sort of constructed, that is a grafted tree in an orchard, like one that you take an imp, you take a, a sapling and you graft it in to the tree, which they would have done in orchards. Or it's possible also that the tree is itself a sapling, that she's gone, gone to sleep not under a huge, so we're not supposed to picture you know, this huge spreading apple tree, but a little sapling. Which would also seem to fit with the setting, right? What are we doing? We're out looking at, we're thinking about May and the birth of spring and the flowers shooting up and the birds singing. And here she's under, not like a mature tree bearing its flowers, but this tree, which is itself springing and growing and very young and spring-like. Maybe. Matt? could be a sort of metaphysical uh, analogy. Like a one of... We're dealing with two different worlds here, and maybe it's implying that one of them is just an offshoot of the other, which one which is a question of Yeah, and that also that if we 
if we were to do the same kind of metaphysical thing with the idea of grafting, right, where you have two things being joined together, that is the fairy king and Herod, you know, so like what you could almost see grafting as a kind of metaphor for what the fairy king is doing, right? I'm going to, I've got, I've got, see, look, here's my fairy entourage, right? I've come with my fairy posse. I'm going to, I'm going to graft, you're mortal, I know that, but I'm going to graft you in, right? I'm going to, I'm going to make you one of my, one of, you're not originally a fairy, but I'm going to graft you into my fairy entourage, right? And you're going to come and live with me. Um, so I think that we can see it functioning metaphorically uh, in some of those ways. Okay, um, that's all we have time for today. Next time, we're going to focus, of course, on Orfeo's response and what he does um, when, of course, they show up the next day. And needless to say, their armed resistance is entirely futile, and she is, in fact, taken away. See you on Friday. Okay, for next time, review the middle section of Sir Orfeo, as we will be focusing on Sir Orfeo's departure for the forest and his encounters with the fairies during his time there. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.